Welcome to the Fringe Element here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. Hey, Braden. My name is Aaron Dugan. You can follow me on Twitter at the Aaron Dugan or the Graham Aaron underscore Dugan. I suppose been a while. You, it has. You you can follow me, I guess, on Instagram. I don't know why. It's just like pictures of like forests and children. So I at mean, Braden Gall. <laughs> yeah, at Braden D. Gall. And then, but what you really should do is follow 440 Sports, of course, at 440 Media on Instagram, at 440 Sports on Twitter. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Aaron, welcome back. You Thank will you. tell a little bit about what happened at the end of the show today. Is that right? I will. And just to, you know, just to sum it up, I saw some meme on the worldwide interweb net uh, yesterday that said, Hey, so yeah, I tried my first seven days of 2021 and I would like my refund. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what I feel like it's not good vibes for this year, but it's, it's been a long week and a half. Yeah. I've seen I've, my favorite one so far is the Joker, uh, Heath Ledger Joker talking to the it clown from Stephen King's it showing them around. And it's like 2020 showing 2021 around. And it's like the two craziest oh, lunatics uh, in the world. But listen, We've got a national champion, so we're going to talk a lot about Alabama today. There is total chaos taking place in Knoxville. We will bring in Josh Ward from WNML, who hosts a show in Knoxville, very well-connected and well-sourced. We will get him to explain exactly what is taking place right now. And by the time you're hearing it, who knows, something could have changed in Knoxville, uh, in theory. Uh, we, we will bring in a co-worker of ours, of mine currently and formerly of yours, Stephen mm-hmm. Lassen from Athlon Sports, and he's going to give us a... He and I also host a college football podcast as well that's sort of national, and we've been doing it for a bunch of years. I've worked with him for 13 years at Athlon Sports, and he will give us, at the very end of the show, the early, 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 way too early preseason rankings for SEC teams in 2021. So you'll get a quick glance at what we can maybe start to talk about when it comes to 2021. So so you'll hear from Josh Ward and Stephen Lassen coming up on the show today. Stephen Lassen is side note, the nicest person on planet earth. And he is a, I used to call him the walking encyclopedia, like walking sports encyclopedia. He knows everything and it's all in his head. And he's just so much nicer than me. I strive to be him one day. Uh, I will be the second source that confirms that he is significantly nicer than you are. And in fact, and you sure, of course, but like, okay, the bar is not exactly all that high with the two of us. So, uh, all right, let's get to Alabama here. And and really, I don't know how you felt, Aaron, going into the championship game, during the championship game, at the end of the championship game. We, we can rattle off all the numbers here. You know, 52 points, the the, the yards per play, the, the scoring offense, the number of first-round draft picks, the number of championships for Saban. We, we'll, we can rattle off all that stuff and talk about the game itself in just a second. But what I wanted to hear from you, Aaron, first, is just how, how are you feeling when you sat down to watch the game, when the game ended, you know, not necessarily about the outcome, but but about the fact that the season actually kind of came to an end. I, I just felt like I was exhaling the entire night. I've thought a lot about this, and I think relief comes to mind first. I'm relieved that we got to where we are, and I hope we've done – as little damage as possible. And what I mean by that is, let me back up just for a second. I've talked to you about this before, but the reason I got into sports in the first place was the unifying factor of it. Um, I love it. I was raised on it. I'm also, you know, with videography, I'm, you know, the artistic side of me loves the merge of the two, but growing up in Memphis, you, you watch, sports do something that nothing else can do. It bridges gaps that other things can't bridge gender, race, socioeconomic class, everything in between. And it's something that you, you would be hard pressed to name anything else that does that. There is almost nothing. In fact, like talk about how crime levels, crime levels in Memphis when the Grizzlies are in the playoffs are much lower, much lower, all violent crime just falls down. Same thing with the warriors in Oakland. Like it's, it's a thing. And there for for the one of the only times I remember this just the disunity bled into sports this year started to um and one of the only other times I remember that happening in my life is Kaepernick but even then what saved sports in both of those situations was 
not us talking about it, not the fans. It was the players and the coaches. And if something saved the unity in sports this year, it was the players and the coaches getting it right. Because while everyone else is biting each other's heads off about what we should do, what we shouldn't do, the players and the coaches huddled up, looked at each other and said, everybody make their own decision. What's best for you? Do it. And then the rest of us are going to do whatever we have to do to make this season work. And they are the reason that we're here. So I'm relieved that I'm relieved that we got here without all this disunity getting into the heads and the organizations of, you know, of the, of these teams, because I think that's really what saves, saves it and kind of, you know, keeps the sanctity of, of college sports as we know it. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that struck me, you know, thinking through the personalities on this team, thinking through the guys that came back, Devonte Smith, Najee Harris, Alex Leatherwood, the guys that came back to be, you know, win national championships, compete together, you know, that maturity, that discipline. We know Nick Saban's the greatest coach of all time. Now he's got seven national championships and, 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 the, and, and, you know, it's unquestioned at this point, he might be the greatest coach in any sport in American history now, but, but, you know, all of, through all of the chaos, through all of the stuff that happened, through all the things that were thrown at kids, the disunity that you're talking about, the thing that still worked was the process. And, I think the reason it worked at Alabama, and it's not to say that that kids weren't busting their asses at every other school in the SEC or around the country or whatever. You know, certainly there are some coaches out there that probably, you know, broke some rules and probably cut some corners. And, you know, I don't, I don't, to me, that doesn't, it doesn't, Nick Saban doesn't strike me as that guy. His whole thing is about the process. And so what was so impressive to me, and, and one of the things I really didn't like, there's a million things to your point that I hated about this summer and how the conversations went down. But one of the things that we talked about or that people talked about, I should say, was that if these kids don't get to play football, we should be worried about their mental health. And I'm always like, number one, I'm worried about the mental health of everyone in the country right now, not just athletes. But frankly, what we just put them through as fans of this sport for our entertainment purposes for our enjoyment and for our mental health, they actually made greater sacrifices than if they didn't play football at all. The self-isolation, removing yourself from friends and family to be as diligent and as vigilant as Alabama was, which is why I think they were able to be successful and accomplish something nobody else has accomplished. 11 wins in an SEC schedule in one year, 13 power five wins, undefeated, only the second time in Nick Saban's career that he's done that. It, it, it had to come at a cost for those players in the moment. It may not be permanent. Now, again, we have no clue about the long-term ramifications of COVID. Basically, we, we wanted a football season, and we were willing to give a bunch of kids COVID to do it. And so we have no idea if what's going to happen. It could be nothing. It could be a total nothing burger. Everybody could be totally fine. Or it could be something. And I'm, I'm not going to apologize for being concerned about that. But in the moment... These kids isolated from their families, from their friends. They went to class. They busted their ass. And I, I just think, and they did it for us as college football fans. And I said this, you know, on, on my other podcast about college football as well. And I, I just, I think it's the most important message that I don't think I expected to learn or want to, to sort of pass out at the end of all of this. And, it, and that is that we underappreciated, underestimated, under everything a bunch of college athletes that were willing to make sacrifices for our entertainment. And I, I think that's one of the, the, one of the lessons that I think I walked away Monday night thinking like, man, those kids did an extraordinary thing this year at Alabama, like Ohio state too, and Clemson and like everywhere else, but like really to win it all be undefeated and to do it in the middle of the toughest schedule we've ever seen. And in a pandemic is just extraordinary to me. I, I just, I was blown away by that emotion on Monday night after the game. It. You're exactly right that the thing, what they gave up, the common, the common person on the street, con spectator has no idea, is not thinking about it. It's, it's enough to do this in, you know, a regular year. And although we were the, we, I say we as in the accumulate, the all encompassing spectator, we were the one because of TV and revenue and you know, spectatorship were the driving force of why it happened. And the players doing what they did is the only reason it was successful. Money and, you know, desire to watch football and people harassing them on Twitter can only go so far. It was, they're the ones that, you know, put in the work that 
saw this thing through and that gave up a lot of things to do that. And not only, I mean, like you said, you know, I self-isolating all of that stuff, not seeing friends and family, but then also, you know, a big part of us is, you know, as spectators, you watch your team win on TV and you're happy, but as a college kid and a college athlete, like a, a lot of the, a lot of the accomplishment, the achievement, the good feeling is, you know, putting on your, Alabama football sweatshirt after a win and walking to class and having people fist bump you on the way to class or like do great game yesterday or you know just being able to like you know walk through the tunnel of fans onto the field to hear the like marching band in the background like a lot they not only did they do this and they did it well but they did it without a lot of the things that you know when you're watching on tv you think about yeah it's, it's funny how like you know, we almost, I don't want to say I got used to how quiet the stadium was for games. Cause you mentioned like the bands and the, you know, all these walks that, that these programs have on game day, like none of that stuff existed. You, you weren't walking to class on Monday, celebrating a win with all your classmates. Like you, you make a good point, like all the other peripheral stuff. And that's sort of what we're talking about here is that these kids, not only did they go 13 and 0 undefeated championship against the toughest schedule we've seen maybe an SEC team ever go through. The only two games they didn't play, by the way, Alabama didn't play South Carolina and Vanderbilt this year. That's it. They played everybody else. And everybody else in every other conference is always ripping on the SEC. Why don't you play more than eight conference games? Alabama just played 11 conference games. The only teams they missed were basically South Carolina and, and, and Vanderbilt. And you could argue those are the two worst teams in the league. So Alabama just played arguably the toughest schedule any team has ever played to win a national championship and did it basically all alone. <laughs> like... Nobody on campus, no, no walk down, you know, from the facility to the, you know, you make a great point, no marching band. And it was surreal on Monday night watching the title game without any of that stuff. Like it felt so drab and so weird to me. And I was just sort of, like you said, I, I was just so relieved and, and, and happy to have the season completed with some level of success. And, and my message to people would be, especially SEC fans who like to thump their chest that like they got it right. We, we don't know who got it right or wrong. I don't think there's a purpose that it serves to argue about who got it right or wrong. I think people were, were exhausted and terrified and, you know, all the things in 2020 and people, you know, if you got three games in, good for you. If you got 10 games in, good for you. If you got 15 games in, good for you. I just, no matter if you played one game this year, congratulations. <laughs> like, I just think we should recalibrate expectations for this year. And it does make what Alabama accomplished on Monday night. And, and we can kind of get into the game a little bit here. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know what there's to say. Like Alabama was great. Ohio state wasn't as good. They probably were the second best team in America and still lost by 30 points. I'm just blown away by, by the process in all of this. Like this, this was the best process that Nick Saban has deployed, in my opinion. I think this was the toughest situation, and I think he, this is his best coaching job. I don't know if it's the best team, but I think this is his best coaching job. I think it's up there in terms of there's a, I mean, there's a, a year or two maybe that you could argue or, you know, maybe in conjunction with talent level that this team was, but there's, you can see when Saban talks about this team that there's something different. And also, you know, I'm not calling Nick Saban soft because you've accused me of this before. He's far from that. Yeah. But I'm seeing Saban have this evolution from being the OCD perfectionist obsessed coach, which you have to be, I would argue. And we could talk, we'll get into this too, because I want to tell you a little bit about, I have some inside scoop about, you know, how the day to day runs at Alabama, just from Ooh. a for, former player. Well, just to, I, I wanted to know why he thought, you know, Saban got to where he was. And I was expecting him to say pretty much what he did say. Um, and so I, you so you talked to a former Alabama player that played yes. under Saban? Okay. Yes. Um, but it's, it's the the day to day. Well, and, and going back to what I was saying about Saban softening, quote unquote, I'm seeing this evolution from him being the nitty gritty OCD obsessed perfectionist, which he is. But that has led to him putting systems in place that now just function as systems. So he can, instead of being in the middle of making sure every single thing happens the way it is, it already does. He has people around him, the staff around him, and everything functions how it how it does because of how he was that obsessiveness um, that he came into the program with but he's turning into this like having that 
that progression into a teacher father figure. You can see it coming out in certain interviews, um, especially when he's finally able to relax a little bit after a win. And yeah, his- he only he probably only watched four hours of film on Tuesday instead of like, his regular eight. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but he took, he took it easy on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, he did. Whatever that definition of easy is for him. Right. But you, he talks about, you can see it in his face and hear it in his voice when he talks about his team and think he's he's becoming a teacher he's teaching it's not just how to win football games it's it's how to win football games and also be um you know grow up to be good men and that's I think that comes with age a little bit but um you could tell that he was really happy you know not only that they won because we know he loves we know he loves a good w but just for the kids for the players and talking about how happy he was for them. And just, he even said to Maria Taylor in the post-game interview, you know, it's just nice to actually be able to absorb the moment because we're always looking forward, which is true. So it was, I mean, I know people love to, would love to see someone else win, but it's, it was hard for me to root against that team or would it, be. It was very clear to me throughout the course of the year. And especially after the championship win that there is a different connection with this particular unit and team than he's had with anybody else. It's not, it's not less than it's not more than it's not greater than it's just different. And, and I don't know, you know, again, unless you're in that locker room, you probably can't explain it. We can't explain it, put words to it, but it does feel different having studied Saban for, you know, 20 years now, it it just felt, it felt different. It looked different, but the whole year was different. So I don't know why that, that it shouldn't be a surprise that, um, you know, 13 and 0 with 11 sec games, and the greatest offensive statistically that Alabama's ever had with a Heisman Trophy receiver and a running back who's probably the best running back in America, a guy that I voted for for the Heisman. And and is just, you know, the best offensive line I maybe have ever seen at Alabama under Nick Saban. Uh, I'm not going to go all the way back to, to some of those Bear Bryant offensive lines, but it's the best one I've seen under Saban. You know, this wasn't a vintage Alabama defense, so I don't know how it would compare to 2011 or 2012. I, I don't, you know, I don't even know what the point of those exercises really, really are, frankly. But, you know, again, <clears throat> I think you look over time and you go, man, every every four years, a recruiting class has won a national championship. No, no player that's played for four years at Alabama under Nick Saban in, since his first recruiting class didn't win a national title every that's single insane every single player that played there for at least four years won a national championship um they, they beat number and I, I can give you a couple of numbers here they beat number two four five seven and 13 this year their average score was basically 50 to 20 they basically beat everybody by 30 points their numbers are almost identical to lsu's efficiency numbers from last year lsu 48.4 points per game 7.89 yards per play Alabama this year, 48.5 points per game, 7.81 yards per play. They had four first-round draft picks last year that they lost off of this team. And now they've got a bunch more. Uh, so, again, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's better than 2012 or 2015 or 2009. Like, I don't care. It's, I think it's the toughest experience that he's had as a coach. It is why he's the greatest coach of all time. And, and, and the other thing – and I don't know, I'm just rambling here, so if you, you, you feel free to jump in. But the other thing that really struck me, thinking about Alabama's time under Saban in a broad picture, broad sense, he's got six championships at Bama. There are five other times where they were like a game away from winning the national title. And, and 2010 is really the only year where you sort of just take it away and say, all right, that was Cam Newton and Auburn. But 08, they lost in the SEC championship game to Tim Tebow and an undefeated, they were undefeated. And that's basically they would have won the national title in 08, if not for the quarterback who's seated at the right hand of the father. Right. And, and then you, the kick six in 2013 to, yep. you know, Auburn needed like mm-hmm. the flukiest play of all time. Otherwise, Bama's probably playing Florida State in the national title game. Ohio State in 2014, Cardell Jones, that one of the greatest runs in Ohio State history. You needed Deshaun Watson in 2016. You needed Trevor Lawrence in 2018. And you needed Joe Burrow in 2019. So even when they don't win the championship under Saban, you have to go through Tuscaloosa and you need something extraordinary to do it. And I think that's like, that's the thing that also struck me is six championships is incredible, but the idea that it probably could be, it could be like 11, <laughs> if not for like these yeah. other extraordinary things that have happened. That there were only, it would the stat be that there are only two times in Nick Saban's tenure that he was more than a game away from the national championship game. 
Yeah, so 2010, I think they lost three or four times. So that was not a team that would they like, lost. Quote, quote, they were quote, ten win. and three that year. Yeah, so they were not like you know the national champion. Like, but again, if they beat Joe Burrow, they there was a one point. It was a one score game in Tuscaloosa last year in 2019, and Joe Burrow, the greatest offense ever assembled in SEC history, came in and beat them by what was it like 48, 42 or whatever by one score mm-hmm. with an injured Tua. If if they win that game. And even if they lose to Auburn the next week, which they did without Tua, they still are going to play in the SEC championship game, which still means they probably win the SEC title, and which means they still probably play in the playoff. Trevor Lawrence is the only thing that beat him in 2018. Deshaun Watson's the only thing that beat him in 2016. Like it takes us, it takes us like a superhero, like a special yes. force to yes. even get in their way. I mean, even the year that they got beat pretty handily by Auburn they still went to the playoff and won the national title. <laughs> like it's, yeah, you know, they didn't even win the division that year. Auburn goes on to lose to Georgia. I just, that that's one of the things that really struck me was just, even when they don't win it, they're basically like, if you don't do something extraordinary, we're basically the national champion. They're either one or they're in your way. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. hundred percent. It's, it's amazing. I'll dial that down. If we just talk about, and I know we've talked a lot about this, but it's, it's fascinating it's fascinating when coaches can do this and repeat it over and over. And there's, cause there are very few people on the planet that can really do that in any sport. And I know I talk about Corbin a lot, but that's just because I have the closest relationship with him and I've seen it up close and there's a lot of similarities. I mean, it's Tim, Tim it's, Corbin's the baseball coach Tim Corbin. Yeah. Corbin, I say but, it. Yeah. I say it like it's, you know, I mean, he's arguably the best, best baseball coach, college baseball coach in America at arguably the best college baseball program in America. So, yes. I mean, he is I'm laying out the context for our football fans you. out there. Yeah, thank you. You think about football and dominance and you think about size and speed and recruiting and you know the glitz and glam and the stadium and all that and that does play a, a part in getting the right people through the door, but you can have all the talent in the world and if you can't harness it and you don't create um, a system that works, you, you will not win titles. You won't even really come close. And what these two coaches have in common and uh, talking about Tim Corbin and Saban, since Corbin's my point of reference is they, is the predictability factor. These kids know exactly what they're doing when they're doing it. There are no questions. And in this, I'll combine my, you know, talking about Coach Corbin comparison with the, um, the guy that I talked to who used to play at Alabama just to get his inside info. And this is, I'm not surprised to say that they have a lot of the same habits um, of you do not walk through the meeting door without holding a water bottle ever. Your shirt is always tucked in. There are no hats in the building. There are no hats um, at practice. You do not ever look like a scrub. You um, with coach Corbin, we do not, you do not say practice. The staff doesn't say practice. We say training or did. Um, <laughs> there are little, these tiny minute things that seem, you look at it from afar and you're like, what the hell? This is so dumb. But then when you when you see it all add up over time, it just becomes a system. And even the, the guy I was talking to was even saying that he eats the same thing every day. So does Corbs. Uh, they get up at the same time, do their workout eat the same thing for the most part. Um, and you know, every rep is the same as the year before the, like this, he said, the second scrimmage of fall camp, the punt rush will be the exact same as it was seven years ago. There is a predictability factor there. And it just, it, and now that he's got that system in place, I think that's allowing him to kind of not step back, but, um, to let that system do what it's supposed to do. And he will be now be a teacher and a mentor on top of running the program. And that is, I'm telling you, that's going to make him even that much better. What's interesting is I don't know if like that structure, that rigidity is for everybody, you know, Dabo and Clemson sort of does it in a different way. And again, there's not a, it's not right or wrong. I don't think, you know, there's a a million ways to skin a cat. I, you know, Jonathan Allen famously talks about how he was going to go to, it was either Clemson or Alabama, and he knew in his mind that he was, you know, the, the, the structure and the organization and sort of the militaristic, you know, implementation of the Alabama program was more going to be, it was going to be better for him than sort of being in this, 
Clemson's sort of more kind of f- more player friendly. I don't want to say loose, but like, again, they still bust their ass at Clemson. They still work right. really hard. It's not, there's just a different personality there. True. And, you know, Urban Meyer famously very loose with his, with his program, very loose, but, it, but again, that sort of self-destructs on it on, on a lot of times. So it takes I, the right kid that right. takes a very special right. kid to not need that system. And and Dabo does it now. Could I do it at that age? I think I could have done it at 18 to 22 because I was so sort of naive. I hadn't figured out who I was or what I believed in in life. Like there was so much left from me to be developed that I probably would have been good in a rigid structure like that. Mm-hmm. Now at my age at 38, I, I, I find myself, you know, I enjoy the more the, the sort of the looseness of like, I, I like putting my own boundaries and creating my own levels of, of rigidity, but at that age, I would have enjoyed it. I don't think I could do it my whole life. And that's what makes the best coaches, coach K at Duke, Nick Saban, in Alabama, whatever, these guys that are the greatest of all time, Bill Belichick mm-hmm. to be able to like Nick Saban's done it for 50 years now. Like it's not just the four years he was in college. It was, he's been doing it for 50 years. He's 70 years old. I, I marvel at that level of attention to detail for that long. And, and so I know, I know we're waxing poetically. I know we need to move on here, but that that's, you know, to your point, I think that's, it's insane. Not easy to, not easy to do. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it takes a, it takes someone that is just different and he's yep. different. Yep. All right. So we'll get, we'll talk with Steven Lassen, uh, my coworker and your former coworker from Athlon Sports. He's on the cover two podcast with myself. Uh, uh, as we talk about the national college football landscape every single week on that podcast. So check that out. Uh, I'm sure a few of you guys kind of go back and forth between the two shows. He will give us a quick ranking of where all the teams in the SEC are sort of slotted in this very early process of 2021 football. So we're already turning the page, Aaron. So we're going to talk with Steven Lassen coming He's up. He's probably going to be right, too. Oh, he always is. So we'll, we'll talk with him coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, and then, of course, you'll tell your story about why you missed last week as well at the end of the show. So stick around. Oh, God. For, stick around for that. But first up, of course, our guest, Josh Ward from WNML, trying to explain all of the chaos that is going on in Knoxville, Tennessee right now. Josh, first of all, man, always appreciate your time coming on the show. We do appreciate it. Let's just get started with what the last few weeks have been like. Can you try to describe basically from kickoff of the Texas A&M game to when we are taping this on on Tuesday afternoon, what has been happening in Knoxville? Well, a mix of not much and a lot. A lot has occurred in terms of rumors. There's a lot of speculation There have been some events from players deciding to leave. Tennessee landed a transfer and a quarterback in Hendon Hooker from Virginia Tech, and it looks like Tennessee's adding Kevin still to the staff, and the exact role is unknown, but it's all hanging around what Jeremy Pruitt's status is, and we're not getting anything from Tennessee, and there has to be a reason for that. If Jeremy Pruitt were absolutely going to be the coach in 2021, it would be very easy for Tennessee to let it be known that he's going to be the head coach in 2021. But there's this investigation that has been going on for quite some time now and is still going on. And while that's happening, the future of Tennessee, the future of Jeremy Pruitt is still unknown. What what is the percentage chance that he'll be the head coach in 2021? I don't know, but there is obvious doubt. So that brings me to the decision-making process. And who's in the room, if you had to guess, uh, when a final decision is made, is Philip Fulmer in that room? Is it just, you know, millionaire boosters? Who, who are the people that will be in the room making that decision finally on, on whether to move on from Pruitt or, or not? That's a good question that people who want to or plan to be in on the decision might be asking as well. Philip Fulmer has made it pretty clear he wants Jeremy Pruitt to be the coach in 2021. He said as much with the statement related to the bowl game that ended up not happening for Tennessee, but he talked about Jeremy Pruitt coaching in the spring, which I imagine meant that he'd be coaching in the fall. But questions to ask are, what does Donnie Plowman think, Tennessee's chancellor? What does President Randy Boyd think about the situation? What do influential money people think about Jeremy Pruitt? And also, what comes out of this investigation exactly? That plays a role in the future of Jeremy Pruitt or the coaching staff, but the, the reason I say that people who intend to be a part of that decision-making process might also ask, okay, who's in the room, uh, if, if you want to describe it that way, because we've seen in the past that Tennessee had to make big decisions, and the people who were supposed to be involved 
ended up being pushed out when the decision was ultimately made. When Tennessee had to go find an athletic director to replace Dave Hart, you had a search committee and some knew that they were going to go in the direction of John Curry. Others found out that they were going to go in the direction of John Curry. And then you had whatever happened with the coaching search that ended up with Greg Schiano being the choice and then everything after that. And then Philip Foreman being the athletic director and Jeremy Pruitt then being the head coach. So we've already seen too many recent examples of Tennessee being in a position where it needed to make a big decision and people that you would expect to make that decision were left out or didn't have as much say as they expected. So how are we to know exactly what's going to happen? I don't know. Do, do you have a way to describe the, the root cause of all of the dysfunction you just laid out? Do you, do you have a way of, of explaining it to people and trying to describe why it is that way right now? Well, it feels like a tug of war where you have certain people that want to have power within decision-making or they have opinions that are going to be different from others. And even in, in this current situation that we're talking about, a lot of the chatter over the last year, two years has been, hey, Tennessee finally has, uh, it has a situation where people who were important, Philip Former, the athletic director, Donnie Plowman and Randy Boyd, that they are moving in the right direction. They are moving in the same direction and they have the continuity that, Tennessee has lacked for a long time. But that was also being said while there weren't big decisions to be made. What was there to not be on the same page about? Jeremy Pruitt was the head coach. They were going to see how it would play out. But then the season happened and it played out in a way that a lot of people didn't like. I mentioned that Philip Fulmer still wants Jeremy Pruitt to be the head coach. If everybody were on board, then we would know that Jeremy Pruitt's going to be the head coach in 2021. And it, and it goes beyond just what some people want. Again, the investigation could play a role in this, but that's why I say tug of war. And then the, the people who financially support Tennessee, if they have differing opinions, that can become a problem. So when you have the, the cooks in the kitchen issue that Tennessee has faced in the past, it has caused problems and it could potentially cause problems here with whatever decision ends up being made. And maybe there is no decision now. Maybe Jeremy Pruitt's the head coach in 2021. But if it doesn't go how Tennessee expects, then a decision might have to be made after 2021. Who makes that decision? Who would then go out and find a new coach if that's what Tennessee ultimately needs to do? There's a chance that they just delay the process that still ends up being very complicated. Well, and I guess that it's interesting. The biggest decision might have been like how many millions to give Rick Barnes. Like that might have been the the most difficult decision they right. had. They they did have to make a move on on a Lady Vols basketball coach, and that's a very big deal to people in Knoxville. But but outside of that, you're right. When when it comes to football, they haven't had to make any decisions. Um, is it as is it as simple as saying if the investigation turns up anything that is going to legal? Like my assumption, Josh, is I see the headline about high priced lawyers coming in. And to me, it is almost impossible to then say, like, to not connect the dots. If Tennessee finds wrongdoing that is going to save them all this money and buyout, aka creating cause, that's why you bring in the lawyers is to do that. And if they do that, then he's gone. Is, is, it, is that a simple enough equation or is it more, I mean, obviously it's more complicated than that, but does that make sense? You're right. It is more complicated than that, but that is a very real possibility. And you're also right that, you're not bringing people in. You're not paying them a bunch of money. You're, you're not spending this amount of time over nothing. There's something there. What do they find exactly? How does it affect certain members of the coaching staff? There will be more change with the coaching staff. I, I think that's a very easy assumption or just expectation to have. Uh, but what does it mean for Jeremy Pruitt? That's the big question. That's the, the move that would ultimately take Tennessee football in a different direction. And it, it could affect Jeremy Pruitt. It, it might not. But the truth is that Tennessee doesn't appear to know. And, uh, and until they do, and, and time would seem to be of the essence here, we're here in the middle of January having this conversation. Tuesday this week is the anniversary of Lane Kiffin deciding to leave Tennessee. Remember how that was very bad for Tennessee from a timing standpoint? They didn't handle the next few days very well. But they kind of panicked because they weren't in a spot where you normally want to go out and hire a coach. And that's the timeline right now. Doesn't mean that if Tennessee has to make a move that it can't go hire a good coach. It's just that it's not ideal. I think that's pretty obvious. So uh, Tennessee needs to figure something out very quickly. But they probably thought that back in November and December. And here we are here in the middle of, the, of January having the same conversation. We're, Braden, we're three and a half weeks roughly into the offseason 
and Tennessee still doesn't know if Jeremy Pruitt's going to be the head coach or who exactly will be the head coach. And considering all that's happened before, some of the things that we're talking about here, that also causes Tennessee fans to worry, to panic, to have doubt in the leadership making the right decisions. And that concern that fans have, to me, is very justified. Which brings us to Kevin Steele, (laughs) a guy who almost had his own coup attempt this year at, at Auburn, thought he was going to be given the job, certainly has some head coaching experience, albeit awful. He was 1-31 in 31 at Baylor. I don't care when that happened. That's really, really bad. But he also was sort of the, the main identity for the Auburn Tigers since he got there. They went from a Gus Malzahn offensive Gus Bus thing to a defensive-oriented football team. And, and, and so he, there's a lot there there with Kevin Steele, but it also is curious timing, if you ask me. What do you make of the Kevin Steele move onto the staff during what was supposed to be a hiring freeze? When Kevin Steele was also a finalist for the head coaching position at Tennessee before Philip Fulmer ultimately chose Jeremy Pruitt. I don't know. It is curious that Kevin Steele is being hired, but his exact role is unknown because one reason could be they're trying to figure out exactly who's going to be on the staff. Is Brian Niedermeyer going to be on the staff? I think there's real doubt there. Tennessee has an opening with the defensive line coach. Is Derek Ansley absolutely going to be on the staff? You could you could honestly ask, will this guy be on the staff with everybody starting from the head coach down at Tennessee? But uh, what does that mean if there is a head coaching change? Uh, what, what does Tennessee do? What would the candidate list be? Assuming Phil Fulmer is making that hire, we know that Kevin Steele was on the list last time. So could he be a candidate potentially to be the head coach? There is no question, I don't think, that's absurd to ask when it comes to Tennessee football or certainly this situation right here. So, again, the answer is I don't know, which is frustrating for listeners to hear. Yeah. But it, I think it should be even more frustrating for Tennessee fans especially to know that behind the scenes, there are a lot of things that still have to be figured out. And a lot of the things that people who will make the decisions ultimately still don't know themselves. And would it be out of line or or incredibly difficult to understand that if they find cause, they remove Jeremy Pruitt, they leave as many of the coaches that are in, on staff in place, Kevin Steele takes over as an interim head coach, knowing that they are going through going to have 10 months of a coaching search for the entire season. And then this time next year, we hit the reset button with the new staff having an organized 10-month coaching search. Is, it, is, that, is that crazy to think about? I don't think that's crazy to think about. I think that would be something that would be on the table. Like if you're looking at the options, if you're looking at the possibilities, if Jeremy Pruitt is let go as the head coach, I would put that on the list. Is it priority number one? Is it the most likely outcome? I wouldn't think so. My guess would be that Tennessee would look at the the candidate list. And by the way, Tennessee needs to be doing that now. Tennessee needs to be making a plan if it's firing Jeremy Pruitt now. Uh, if that's a possibility, it has to be a possibility. Uh, so they need to be doing that now. But if if they go through that process and they have a few candidates that they want to go after and those candidates say no, that's not out of the realm of possibility, is it? It's happened every time Tennessee's gone after a head coach. Then they might say, you know what? Why don't we just hand the program over to somebody who is respected, who's been in this business for a long time, who understands Tennessee, who understands the SEC and then let's see where we are with a full year, essentially, to find the guy for the future. That could end up being Kevin Still if this scenario were to play out. But Tennessee needs to make sure it doesn't make a hire that is rushed. Tennessee, if it has to replace Jeremy Pruitt, needs to make a plan for not just 2021, because it's not going to be a very good team. It's not going to be a championship contender, no matter who's coaching it, Jeremy Pruitt or otherwise. They need to figure out what is the direction of the football program, which will have a big impact on the future of the athletic department. I don't know. Tennessee's made a lot worse decisions than giving Kevin Steele an interim tag for 10 months. <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen them do a lot worse things than that. It, there's actually some, some logic in it. Just saying. Just yeah. Saying. I mean, I brought up the link given timing. There were a lot of people at that time that thought Tennessee should have made Kippy Brown the interim head coach. He was supposed to be a candidate for the job. Meanwhile, they went and hired Derek Dooley while interviewing Kippy Brown. It was shameful what Tennessee did. But a lot of people argued, this is bad timing. You're going to rush into the wrong choice. Let Kippy Brown, who is an adult, he is a veteran in the industry, let him take over for 2010. And then if he's not the head coach of the future, that's fine. You have plenty of time to then go hire a head coach. 
Tennessee did not do that. You know what happened afterward. And potentially, Tennessee could be in the same situation. Josh Ward, WNML in Knoxville. Always a pleasure, buddy. You got it. Thanks, Braden. Special thanks to Josh Ward from WNML in Knoxville for giving us an update on whatever the hell it is that is happening in the 865 right now with Tennessee. I guess we'll find out at some point soon or any moment what's going on with Jeremy Pruitt, Philip Fulmer, and the decisions about the football program at the University of Tennessee. Let's now look ahead to 2021. And co-worker of mine, Athlon Sports, is Stephen Lassen, already deep in the weeds on putting together the magazine for 2021 for college football. And we had a conversation with him about exactly where every SEC team could be ranked, the hierarchy, the way, way, way too early top 25 and rankings within the SEC. Here's our conversation, myself and Aaron Dugan, with Athlon Sports' Stephen Lassen. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on Fringe Element. Uh, Stephen, of course, my co-host on the Athlon Sports Cover 2 podcast. You can hear a lot more of his takes there. Stephen, first of all, how are you? And my first question will be, I, I guess, about Alabama. I, I just there, There's no reason to ask about any team in 2021 being ranked ahead of Alabama in the SEC, right? It is good to talk to both of you, two of my friends and colleagues. So it is a pleasure to be talking to both of you, especially about the SEC. Long time no talk. Yeah, long time no talk. Um, You know, I think first of all on the SEC for next season, Braden, you're absolutely right. It is Alabama's conference to lose again, and we, you know, it's 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 this weird space where Alabama's losing the Heisman Trophy winner record-setting quarterback, record-setting running back, couple starters on the offensive line, and we just pencil them in at number one in the SEC. And really, I've got them number one in the country going into 2021 as well. So there is somewhat of a debate on Georgia. I think you could make a case how close they are to Alabama, um, but I'm going into 2021 with the Crimson Tide at top of the SEC. As we go, moving past that, I don't, that doesn't come as any surprise to me. Stephen, but as we as we move down, you know, obviously Florida had such a standout year, and you know Kyle Trask being a Heisman contender, but obviously Texas A and M was quickly and swiftly approaching. Where do you put those two, assuming that they're the next and then those next two slots? Yeah, that's a good question. I think Texas A and M is kind of gaining ground into that second tier Um, this season, just finishing outside of the college football playoff, um, you know, getting to the orange bowl and, and beating North Carolina, you look ahead to next season and defense should be a strength for Texas A&M great backfield, probably one of the deepest in college football. They've got to find a quarterback. Um, Kellen Mond is, you know, graduating offensive line, some turnover there, but I think as far as program trajectory, Texas A&M is clearly trending up. I don't think that they can catch Alabama next season. They do play Alabama at home in College Station. But when you start looking at that second tier, you know, Alabama's one. Georgia is is the clear number two. But then after that, I think A&M, they beat Florida this year. They should be the third best team in the SEC next season. Florida just losing a lot. Kyle Trask. Um, receivers gone, defensive question mark. So I think AM pretty, in my mind, pretty clear uh, the number three team in, in the SEC going into next season. Why is Georgia clearly number two? I think when you look at the way kind of college football is, is morphing, it's about quarterbacks and receivers. And Braden, you and I have debated the Georgia quarterback battle over and over again. For, for 2020, and you got it right. Uh, so I will give you credit there. Uh, JT Daniels uh, changed this offense. You look at the production pre-JT Daniels and after he took over the starting job. He gave this offense a big-time spark in the passing game. They've got the receiving core. George Pickens is back. Um, other kind of young receivers ready to step up. Georgia's offense is kind of morphing into um, more – you know, I guess not not balance may be a bad word, but they can certainly we've seen with LSU and Alabama what they've done being able to spread the field and throw it. Georgia can now do that uh, next season. So uh, not to mention, um, of course, Georgia with de- good defense as well. So some losses in the secondary. But overall, I think Georgia with 
the offensive firepower that they now have and the course, the solid defense um, Kirby Smart has, I think Georgia pretty clear number two in the SEC and also not to mention Florida losing a lot as well. So as we bump down, so that's, I don't think many people would have an argument that those four fall in that top tier for the SEC, but as we jump down a tier, um, assuming you wouldn't put anyone else in that top category, is Ole Miss in that next step down? Because they seem to be trending up as well, and they're known for surprising people um, just in general or playing to their competition. But do you think they fall into that next category? Is it them, LSU, Auburn? What order do they come in? Or is Ole Miss you know, not quite there yet? Yeah, that's a good question because I feel like that LSU, Auburn, Ole Miss tier is really close going into next season. Auburn with the new coach, um, can Brian Harson get Bo Nix playing better in 2021? Losses at receiver for Auburn. I think for LSU, anything that could go wrong pretty much went wrong this year. Injuries, opt-out, um, you know, COVID issues. It felt like this was, we expected this team to take a step back, but at the same time, I think the drop-off was a little steeper than what I think most people anticipated. But going into next season, LSU has a lot of talent coming back. I mean, they've recruited very well. They have three quarterbacks you could feel pretty good about uh, winning with. So I I think LSU will be better. And and that's why I've kind of got it LSU, Ole Miss, and then Auburn. Ole Miss should have no trouble scoring points. Once again, Matt Corral is back. They've got some receivers that they can work with. Defense for Ole Miss has to improve. If they want to be a top 25 team next season, which I think they have a pretty good chance to be, the defense has to be better. You know LSU has a lot going on when you name all those things and leave legal accusations and allegations off of the list. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was, like I said, anything that could go wrong You're for right. you pretty much went wrong, um, you know, as far as... Yeah, that one, that, one, that one didn't go wrong. That was self-inflicted. That's yes, I, I mean, from an, from an on-field personnel perspective is, and not to mention the coaching, you know, losing Joe Brady, they had Bo Pelini as um, you know, defensive coordinator. They gave up over seven yards of play last season. So, you know, th- there's there's been a lot of just turnover and uncertainty with LSU the last kind of season and a half. And with all the players coming back, a revamped coaching staff, I mean, they went to they went to the Panthers to hire some of Joe Brady's assistants. I mean, Joe Brady has a coaching tree, and he's not even <laughs> like 32 years old. So, I mean, there's, there's just the talent plus potential plus revamped coaching staff should yeah. equal improvement for LSU. So the next tier, it feels like, is Missouri, Kentucky, and Tennessee. And so we'll get to that in a second. But what, where is, with Athlon Sports preseason, way too early, top 25, What where is the cutoff? Is it LSU in there? Is Ole Miss in there? Auburn's not? Where, where do you have that cutoff real quickly? Yeah, I, LSU is the last team in from the SEC in, in the Athlon very early, top 25. Ole Miss just missed. I think I'd probably have them 26 or 27 right now. Okay, so now we're talking about teams that are going to be fighting to get to bowl eligibility. Missouri's got the quarterback with Connor Bazelak. Tennessee, we have no clue who's even going to be the head coach. Uh, I've got a theory on that. We'll hear from, you know, as Josh Ward mentioned, I think Kevin Steele as the interim head coach for 2021 is a very sound strategy. That's what I would be deploying. And then having a open for business sign in Knoxville is what I would do, as we just talked about uh, with Josh Ward. But Kentucky, Mark Stoops, consistency, Uh, You know, Missouri with the quarterback, how do you break these three down? And is that the next tier? Yeah, it it is. I I like Missouri just ahead of Kentucky and Tennessee, largely because they have an answer at quarterback. Um, Connor Bazelak played well this season. I think that gives Missouri a small edge over Tennessee and Kentucky right now. Um, You know, also Missouri needs to find a new defensive coordinator. Uh, Ryan Walters uh, left to go to Illinois. Kentucky has a new offensive coordinator, uh, Liam Cohen, coming over from the Rams, trying to get a little bit more of a spark in the passing game for 2021. Kentucky got to find a quarterback, got to find more playmakers at receiver. And, you know, for Tennessee, I think some of the things you mentioned, I mean, just uncertainty at the top, there's uncertainty at quarterback. Defensively gave up over 30 points a game last season. So 
I think with having an edge at quarterback gives Missouri a small edge right now over those other two. So that leaves Arkansas, Mississippi State, South Carolina, and Vanderbilt. With, you know, obviously Arkansas showed glimpses of hope and we know how I feel. I don't know how, do you know how I feel about Sam Pittman, Stephen Lassen, but it's like, it's like true love. But <laughs> hey, same, same here. I, really, I mean, you guys are both so nice too. So y'all probably have like a lot more in common than I do with him. Like I, I love offensive line coaches. Like they're the most fascinating, fun, entertaining coaches. And Sam Pittman like really wanted that job. And you could tell from the moment that he was hired, how much it meant to him longtime assistant and he got his chance and they were much better last season. So I love Sam Pittman. I love watching Arkansas play. Me too. They have to have good personalities because they just hold so much weight in college. So all my friends that were O-linemen were like, yeah, we have to be funny. We're like huge. Like we have to be fun and upbeat because what else we got going for them? Uh, offensive linemen are insane. And so are the offensive line coaches. <laughs> I know. Look, also comes with some crazy, doesn't it? Yeah. Much like it wasn't the best, like one of the best personalities in football this year, Landon Dickerson oh, in yeah. Alabama. <laughs> yeah. How do those four, you know, kind of fall into place for you? You know, I I was, you know, kind of praising Sam Pittman in Arkansas there, and I think they are going to take another step forward next season. I think they could be a bowl team. They are losing Felipe Franks at quarterback. K.J. Jefferson, who's played well uh, last season um, in the Missouri game, I think could be a real difference maker for this offense. He's shown flashes of potential, good skill talent. Um, Barry Odom, one of the better defensive coordinators in the SEC, so I think Arkansas will continue to get better. Would not surprise me um, if they go to a bowl game. I, I don't. I don't think they're too far behind that um, Ole Miss, you know, Auburn, LSU tier. You know, you start thinking maybe top 40, 50 if if things fall right this year. I think Mississippi State will be better too. Uh, you know, from an offensive transition standpoint, having a full off season under Mike Leach's scheme. Will Rogers played well at the end of the year. They have a lot of guys coming back too. So I think there's some optimism at Mississippi State. I do think they are right now, at least in my mind, they are number seven in the SEC West. But I would put them over both South Carolina and Vanderbilt right now. Um, I like the Clark Lee higher at Vanderbilt. I just think they have a long ways to go. I think you look at South Carolina and see kind of the same things that kind of gave them trouble this year are still there. Um, you know, they have two good running backs in Harris and Lloyd, but what about the quarterback and what about the receivers? So a lot of question marks at South Carolina and Vanderbilt for next season. I think they're the clear uh, six and seven team in the East and 13 and 14 in the SEC right now. Steven, always a pleasure talking to you. Tell everybody where and what you got going on with Athlon Sports and that early top 25 right now. Absolutely. So athlonsports.com, if you like college football content, you can check us out there. We have the early top 25 for 2021, and we have early conference predictions for 2021 as well. So even though the season just ended, we're getting ready for next season at Athlon Sports. No such thing as way too early at Athlon Sports as well. You can also hear them on the Cover 2 podcast covering all 130 teams in college football. Steven, always a pleasure, my friend. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Special thanks to Steven Lassen from Athlon Sports for joining us there, giving us a – listen, he says way too early. I don't think there's any such thing as way too early look at what the SEC hierarchy will be in 2021. And, of course, Josh Ward from WNML trying to explain all of the chaos going on in Knoxville. Uh, right a there. tough so, job. Yeah, exactly. Listen, I do think, I do think Tennessee. Here's, I, I finally landed on a plan. I think. Yeah, Tennessee, tell them the theory because this is good, and I, you know, I wouldn't toot your horn if I didn't have to. <laughs> well, and I, I laid it out with Josh a little bit there, but I'll do it more succinctly here, and that is, Kevin Steele's got head coaching experience, even if he was terrible. He was one in thirty-one at Baylor, but I, I think, right now, it's so dysfunctional. That And if you can fire Jeremy Pruitt with cause to save yourself a boatload of money in the buyout world, I don't think hiring a coach right now is all that. Um, it's not a, it's not the best timing for that. So why not be the first one in line next year in 2021 of the coaching search world and name him name Kevin Steele, the interim coach. There's a lot worse ways Tennessee could go about solving their problems at, at their program right now 
then firing Pruitt and the staff because they've got cause and, and NCAA issues. Name Kevin Steele, interim head coach who played at Tennessee and has a relationship with Philip Fulmer, and then tell everybody that you're open for business. Just say, look, we're searching for a coach all year long, and we're going to do the best possible job to find a coach. I think that's, to me, that's the solution that no one's talking about, and I think it would kind of solve all their problems, frankly. In college sports, specifically in football, administration and people making decisions have a really hard time making a good long-term decision at potentially the expense of the short-term. However, I don't think this has a lot of short-term costs. And if you, you have to look towards the future because this is a, this is a sport that it takes time to get it right and build it back. I, I think your theory is pretty spot on and I don't see any downside, especially with the current dysfunction, uh, which way are you going to go? Well, and as Steven just laid out, like, you know, at best case, they might be the 10th best team in the SEC, the ninth best team. So if you fire Pruitt and hire somebody immediately, I mean, this is how you end up with Derek Dooley. This, this, as Josh explained, this is how you end up with the coaches that they've had at Tennessee is because you've waited till the very end and you sort of do it in a rushed, immature way. And fine, let's say they do that again. Like, does that, is that going to automatically make Tennessee a top five team in the SEC? Of course not. Of course not. There's nothing really, to, to your point, there's nothing really to lose. So um, there, there you have it. I, I, we'll just, as the, as the sun sphere turns in Knoxville, I guess, is, is what's happening. It's a good uh, theory. And before you move on, um, now that I just kind of sort of complimented you or at least acknowledged your competency, um, uh, do you have something to say to me? Here, here we go. About? Uh, about? Just the season, how it ended, maybe namely Alabama. Maybe a, you were right. Oh, you want me to say you were right? Because I was. About Alabama going undefeated? Unscathed, yep. You, you Said were it correct. couldn't be done. You were correct. Wow. I thought they would lose a game. I thought everybody would lose a game. And everyone did lose a game except for Alabama. Thank you. That felt great. Okay. <laughs> was it good Go for on. you? <laughs> yeah, that was perfect. Uh, all right. So uh, you want to tell everybody before we, we ride off into the sunset this week, do you, do you want to tell everybody why you weren't on the show last week? Um, sure. Um, and then we'll just lay it all out there. Be totally transparent. I had had, I'll try to make it short. Um, it includes me cussing out a doctor and a nurse with every word under the sun. So I'm intrigued. I won't say, I won't repeat what I said because it's not great, but it worked. Um, had like, like sore, like my lymph nodes were bothering me for, or where I thought was my lymph nodes for, I don't know, a week and a half or so, but I just, I had already been tested for COVID for another video shoot I had to do, didn't have COVID. So I was like, oh, maybe it's just like upper respiratory or cold or something. Well, my neck started to swell over the course of about a week at its largest point looked like about three, four, if you cut the very end off a of baseball and put the rest under my neck, I kid you not, it was, it was really bad, very painful, horrible. My doctor, <laughs> I tried to see her on New Year's Eve, Thursday, she couldn't see me. She's like, just take Advil till Monday. Not a good idea. Uh, I didn't think it was a good idea either. Went in on Monday, horrible. She's like, you need a CAT scan. Then they were just dragging ass like, oh, we'll get you one in two days. And then once I got the CAT scan, they'll get you an ENT appointment in three days. And I was like, there's a lot more to this story, but they did not treat me well. And they were messing with, they were barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> so I was like, absolutely reamed them out. And was like, you guys got to effing do something because you're being complacent. It was a whole ordeal. I promise you, I was not being unjustifiably dramatic. It was, it was bad. Got into the ENT and um, I was operated on about 35, 40 minutes after meeting him. He looked at me and was surgery. Like, yes. Put totally under surgery. Wow. He was like, walked out of the room, saw me, walked out of the room, came back in and was like, uh, the closest hospitals, William, uh, Williamson County hospital. Jesus. I'll meet you there in 10 minutes. Like, He's like, I'm assuming you, you don't need to go to an ambulance. I'll just meet you there. And yep, Holy operating smokes. on 45 minutes later. Yeah, the the nurse has had a, I have a tumultuous relationship with the <laughs> the nurse now because she, um, the nurse and I are fighting and I might fire a doctor. So if anyone's ever fired a doctor, it sounds really fun. I'm going to do that. So I'm taking suggestions on Twitter. Cool. I'm glad you're uh, clearly back to normal. <laughs> it's not that bad anymore, but you can still see. You are you are just as feisty as you were before the procedure. So I am oh, glad that you are back. So. You are back to your midseason form. I do appreciate that. Trust your gut on your health because 
doctors are supposed to have your back and sometimes they do, but sometimes you know better than them. So lesson learned. There you have it. A lesson for all of you listeners out there. And again, most importantly, we are happy that you are okay and back on the show. <laughs> That's our number one priority is that you are healthy and back on the show and maybe, you know, have committed a, couple, a few murders along the way. It's okay. Not a big deal. Was very close. Yes. <laughs> Special thanks. Check her out on Instagram, of course, at Aaron underscore Dugan. There you go. Uh, special that. thanks to Stephen Lassen from Athlon Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at Athlon Stephen. Josh Ward as well from WNML in Knoxville. Aaron, where can people follow you? On Twitter at the Aaron Dugan. You can follow me at Braden Gall. Thank you all for listening. 440 Sports, of course, at 440 Sports on Twitter and Facebook, at 440 Media on Instagram. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Please share it. Tell your friends if you like it. We do appreciate it. That is how it grows. Uh, and uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging out. For Aaron Dugan, my name is Braden Gall. This has been Fringe Element on the 440 Sports Network. Later. Later.